Chapter Two of the Decoration of Houses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Freeberg Renwick. The Decoration of Houses by Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman. Chapter Two. Rooms in General. Before beginning to decorate a room, it is essential to consider for what purpose the room is to be used. It is not enough to ticket it with some such general designation as library, drawing room, or den. The individual tastes and habits of people who are to occupy it must be taken into account. It must not be a library or a drawing room, but the library or the drawing room best suited to the master or mistress of the house which is being decorated. Individuality in house furnishing has seldom been more harped upon than at the present time. That cheap originality which finds expression in putting things to uses for which they were not intended is often confounded with individuality, whereas the latter consists not in an attempt to be different from other people at the cost of comfort, but in the desire to be comfortable in one's own way, even though it be the way of a monotonously large majority. It seems easier to most people to arrange a room like someone else's than to analyze and express their own needs. Men in these matters are less exacting than women because their demands, besides being simpler, are uncomplicated by the feminine tendency to want things because other people have them, rather than to have things because they are wanted. But it must never be forgotten that everyone is unconsciously tyrannized over by the wants of others, the wants of dead and gone predecessors, who have an inconvenient way of thrusting their different habits and tastes across the current of later existences. The unsatisfactory relations of some people with their own rooms are often to be explained in this way. They have still in their blood the traditional uses to which these rooms were put in times quite different from the present. It is only an unconscious extension of the conscious habit which old-fashioned people have of clinging to their parents' way of living. The difficulty of reconciling these instincts with our own comfort and convenience, and the various compromises to which they lead in the arrangement of our rooms, will be more fully dealt with in the following chapters. To go to the opposite extreme and discard things because they are old-fashioned is equally unreasonable. The golden mean lies in trying to arrange our houses with a view to our own comfort and convenience. And it will be found that the more closely we follow this rule, the easier our rooms will be to furnish and the pleasanter to live in. People whose attention has never been specially called to the raison d'etre of house furnishing sometimes conclude that because a thing is unusual, it is artistic, or rather that through some occult process the most ordinary things become artistic by being used in an unusual manner, while others warned by the visible results of this theory of furnishing, infer that everything artistic is unpractical. In the Anglo-Saxon mind, beauty is not spontaneously born of material wants, as it is with the Latin races. We have to make things beautiful. They do not grow so of themselves. The necessity of making this effort has caused many people to put aside the whole problem of beauty and fitness in household decoration as something mysterious and incomprehensible to the uninitiated. The architect and decorator are often aware that they are regarded by their clients as the possessors of some strange craft like black magic or astrology. This fatalistic attitude has complicated the simple and intelligible process of house furnishing, 
and has produced much of the discomfort which causes so many rooms to be shunned by everybody in the house, in spite, or rather because, of all the money and ingenuity expended on their arrangement. Yet to penetrate the mystery of house furnishing it's only necessary to analyze one satisfactory room and to notice wherein its charm lies. To the fastidious eye it will, of course, be found in fitness of proportion, in the proper use of each molding, and in the harmony of all the decorative processes. And even to those who think themselves indifferent to such detail, much of the sense of restfulness and comfort produced by certain rooms depends on the due adjustment of their fundamental parts. Different rooms minister to different wants, and while a room may be made very livable, without satisfying any but the material requirements of its inmates, it is evident that the perfect room should combine these qualities with what corresponds to them in a higher order of needs. At present, however, the subject deals only with the material livableness of a room, and this will generally be found to consist in the position of the doors and fireplace, the accessibility of the windows, the arrangement of the furniture, the privacy of the room, and the absence of the superfluous. The position of doors and fireplace, though the subject comes properly under the head of house planning, may be included in this summary, because in rearranging a room it's often possible to change its openings, or at any rate, in the case of doors, to modify their dimensions. The fireplace must be the focus of every rational scheme of arrangement. Nothing is so dreary, so hopeless to deal with, as a room in which the fireplace occupies a narrow space between two doors, so that it is impossible to sit about the hearth. Next in importance come the windows. In townhouses especially, where there is so little light that every ray is precious to the reader or worker, window space is invaluable. Yet in few rooms are the windows easy of approach, free from useless draperies and provided with easy chairs so placed that the light falls properly on the occupant's work. It is no exaggeration to say that many houses are deserted by the men of the family for lack of those simple comforts which they find at their clubs, windows unobscured by layers of muslin, a fireplace surrounded by easy chairs and protected from drafts, well-appointed writing-tables and files of papers and magazines. Who cannot call to mind the dreary drawing-room, in small-town houses the only possible point of reunion for the family, but too often, in consequence of its exquisite discomfort, of no more use as a meeting-place than the vestibule or the cellar. The windows in this kind of room are invariably supplied with two sets of muslin curtains, one hanging against the panes, the other fulfilling the supererogatory duty of hanging against the former. Then come the heavy, stiff curtains, so draped as to cut off the upper light of the windows by day, while it is impossible to drop them at night. Curtains that have thus ceased to serve the purpose for which they exist. Close to the curtains stands the inevitable lamp or jardiniere, and the wall space between the two windows where the writing table might be put is generally taken up by a cabinet or console, surmounted by a picture made invisible by the dark shadow of the hangings. The writing table might find place against the side wall near either window, but these spaces are usually sacred to the piano, and to that modern futility, the silver table. Thus, of necessity, the writing table is either banished or put in some dark corner, where it is little wonder that the ink dries unused, and a vase of flowers grows in the middle of the blotting pad. The hearth should be the place about which people gather. 
but the mantelpiece in the average American house, being ugly, is usually covered with inflammable draperies. The fire is, in consequence, rarely lit, and no one cares to sit about a fireless hearth. Besides, on the opposite side of the room is a gap in the wall, eight or ten feet wide, opening directly upon the hall, and exposing what should be the most private part of the room to the scrutiny of messengers, servants, and visitors. This opening is sometimes provided with doors, but these, as a rule, are either slid into the wall or are unhung and replaced by a curtain through which every word spoken in the room must necessarily pass. In such a room it matters very little how the rest of the furniture is arranged, since it is certain that no one will ever sit in it except the luckless visitor who has no other refuge. Even the visitor might be thought entitled to the solace of a few books, but as all the tables in the room are littered with knick-knacks, it is difficult for the most philanthropic hostess to provide even this slight alleviation. When the townhouse is built on the basement plan and the drawing-room or parlor is upstairs, the family, to escape from its discomforts, habitually take refuge in the small room opening off the hall on the ground floor, so that instead of sitting in a room twenty or twenty-five feet wide, they are packed into one less than half that size and exposed to the frequent intrusions from which, in basement houses, the drawing-room is free. But too often even the little room downstairs is arranged less like a sitting-room in a private house than a waiting-room at a fashionable doctor's or dentist's. It has the inevitable yawning gap in the wall, giving on the hall close to the front door, and is either the refuge of the ugliest and most uncomfortable furniture in the house, or, even if furnished with taste, is arranged with so little regard to comfort that one might as well make it part of the hall as is often done in rearranging old houses. This habit of sacrificing a useful room to the useless widening of the hall is indeed the natural outcome of furnishing rooms of this kind in so unpractical a way that their real usefulness has ceased to be apparent. The science of restoring wasted rooms to their proper uses is one of the most important and least understood branches of house furnishing. Privacy would seem to be one of the first requisites of civilized life, yet it is only necessary to observe the planning and arrangement of the average house to see how little this need is recognized. Each room in a house has its individual uses. Some are made to sleep in, others are for dressing, eating, study, or conversation. But whatever the uses of a room, they are seriously interfered with if it be not preserved as a small world by itself. If the drawing-room be part of the hall and the library part of the drawing-room, all three will be equally unfitted to serve their special purpose. The indifference to privacy which has sprung up in modern times, and which in France, for instance, has given rise to the grotesque conceit of putting sheets of plate glass between two rooms, and of replacing doorways by openings fifteen feet wide, is of complex origin. It is probably due in part to the fact that many houses are built and decorated by people unfamiliar with the habits of those for whom they are building. It may be that architect and decorator live in a simpler manner than their clients, and are therefore ready to sacrifice a kind of comfort of which they do not feel the need to the effects obtainable by vast openings and extended vistas. To the untrained observer, size often appeals more than proportion, and costliness than suitability. In a handsome house, such an observer is attracted rather by the ornamental detail than by the underlying purpose of planning and decoration. He sees the beauty of the detail, but not its relation to the whole. He therefore regards it as elegant but useless, and his next step is to infer that there is an inherent elegance in what is useless. 
Before beginning to decorate a house, it is necessary to make a prolonged and careful study of its plan and elevations, both as a whole and in detail. The component parts of an undecorated room are its floor, ceiling, wall spaces, and openings. The openings consist of the doors, windows, and fireplace, and of these, as has already been pointed out, the fireplace is the most important in the general scheme of decoration. No room can be satisfactory unless its openings are properly placed and proportioned, and the decorator's task is much easier if he has also been the architect of the house he is employed to decorate. But as this seldom happens, his ingenuity is frequently taxed to produce a good design upon the background of a faulty and illogical structure. Much may be done to overcome this difficulty by making slight changes in the proportions of the openings, and the skillful decorator, before applying his scheme of decoration, will do all that he can to correct the fundamental lines of the room. But the result is seldom so successful as if he had built the room, and those who employ different people to build and decorate their houses should at least try to select an architect and a decorator trained in the same school of composition, so that they may come to some understanding with regard to the general harmony of their work. In deciding upon a scheme of decoration, it is necessary to keep in mind the relation of furniture to ornament, and of the room as a whole to other rooms in the house. As in a small house a very large room dwarfs all the others, so a room decorated in a very rich manner will make the simplicity of those about it look mean. Every house should be decorated according to a carefully graduated scale of ornamentation, culminating in the most important room of the house. But this plan must be carried out with such due sense of the relation of the rooms to each other that there shall be no violent break in the continuity of treatment. If a white and gold drawing-room opens onto a hall with a Brussels carpet and papered walls, the drawing-room will look too fine and the hall mean. In the furnishing of each room the same rule should be as carefully observed. The simplest and most cheaply furnished room, provided the furniture be good of its kind, and the walls and carpet unobjectionable in color, will be more pleasing to the fastidious eye than one in which gilded consoles and cabinets of wool stand side by side with cheap machine-made furniture and delicate old marquetry tables are covered with trashy china ornaments. It is, of course, not always possible to refurnish a room when it is redecorated. Many people must content themselves with using their old furniture, no matter how ugly and ill-assorted it may be, and it is the decorator's business to see that his background helps the furniture to look its best. It is a mistake to think that because the furniture of a room is inappropriate or ugly, a good background will bring out these defects. It will, on the contrary, be a relief to the eye to escape from the bad lines of the furniture to the good lines of the walls, and should the opportunity to purchase new furniture ever come, there will be a suitable background ready to show it to the best advantage. Most rooms contain a mixture of good, bad, and indifferent furniture. It is best to adapt the decorative treatment to the best pieces and to discard those which are in bad taste, replacing them, if necessary, by willow chairs and stained deal tables until it is possible to buy something better. When the room is to be refurnished as well as to redecorated, the client often makes his purchases without regard to the decoration. Besides being an injustice to the decorator, inasmuch as it makes it impossible for him to harmonize his decoration with the furniture, this generally produces a result unsatisfactory to the owner of the house. Neither decoration nor furniture, however good of its kind, can look its best unless each is chosen with reference to the other. It is therefore necessary that the decorator, before planning his treatment of a room, should be told what it is to contain. If a gilt set is put in a room, the walls of which are treated in low relief and painted white, the highlights of the gilding will destroy the delicate values of the moldings, and the walls at a little distance 
will look like flat expanses of whitewashed plaster. When a room is to be furnished and decorated at the smallest possible cost, it must be remembered that the comfort of its occupants depends more on the nature of the furniture than of the wall decorations or carpet. In a living room of this kind, it is best to tint the walls and put a cheerful drugget on the floor, keeping as much money as possible for the purchase of comfortable chairs and sofas and substantial tables. If little can be spent in buying furniture, willow armchairs with denim cushions and solid tables with stained legs and covers of denim or corduroy will be more satisfactory than the parlor suit turned out in thousands by the manufacturer of cheap furniture, or the pseudo-Georgian or pseudo-empire of the dealer in high-grade goods. Plain bookcases may be made of deal, painted or stained, and a room treated in this way, with a uniform color on the wall and plenty of lamps and books, is sure to be comfortable and can never be vulgar. It is to be regretted that in this country and in England it should be almost impossible to buy plain but well-designed and substantial furniture. Nothing can exceed the ugliness of the current designs, the bedsteads with towering headboards fretted by the versatile jigsaw, the bedroom suits of mahoganized cherry, bird's-eye maple, or some other crude colored wood, the tables with meaninglessly turned legs, the empire chairs and consoles stuck over with ornaments of cast bronze washed in liquid gilding, and worst of all the supposed colonial furniture, that unworthy travesty of a plain and dignified style. All this showy stuff has been produced in answer to the increasing demand for cheap effects, in place of unobtrusive merit in material and design. But now that an appreciation of better things in architecture is becoming more general, it is to be hoped that the artistic furniture disfiguring so many of our shop windows will no longer find a market. There is no lack of models for manufacturers to copy, if their customers will but demand what is good. France and England in the 18th century excelled in the making of plain, inexpensive furniture of walnut, mahogany, or painted beechwood. Simple in shape and substantial in construction, this kind of furniture was never tricked out with molded bronzes and machine-made carving, or covered with liquid gilding but depended for its effect upon the solid quantities of good material, good design, and good workmanship. The 18th century cabinet-maker did not attempt cheap copies of costly furniture. The common sense of his patrons would have resented such a perversion of taste. Were the modern public as fastidious, it would soon be easy to buy good furniture for a moderate price. But until people recognize the essential vulgarity of the pinchbeck article flooding our shops and overflowing upon our sidewalks, Manufacturers will continue to offer such wares in preference to better but less showy designs. The worst defects of the furniture now made in America are due to an Athenian thirst for novelty, not always regulated by an Athenian sense of fitness. No sooner is it known that beautiful furniture was made in the time of Marie Antoinette than an epidemic of supposed Marie Antoinette rooms breaks out over the whole country. Neither purchaser nor manufacturer has stopped to inquire wherein the essentials of the style consist. They know that the rooms of the period were usually painted in light colors, and that the furniture, in palaces, was often gilt and covered with brocade, and it is taken for granted that plenty of white paint, a pale wallpaper with bow knots, and fragile chairs dipped in liquid gilding and covered with a flowered silk and cotton material, must inevitably produce a Marie Antoinette room. According to the creed of the modern manufacturer, you have only to combine certain goods to obtain a certain style. This quest of artistic novelties would be encouraging were it based on the desire for something better, rather than for something merely different. The tendency to dash from one style to another, 
without stopping to analyze the intrinsic qualities of any, has defeated the efforts of those who have tried to teach the true principles of furniture designing by a return to the best models. If people will buy the stuff now offered them as Empire, Sheraton, or Louis XVI, the manufacturer is not to blame for making it. It is not the maker but the purchaser who sets the standard, and there will never be any general supply of better furniture until people take time to study the subject and find out wherein lies the radical unfitness of what now contents them. Until this golden age arrives, the householder who cannot afford to buy old pieces or to have old models copied by a skilled cabinet-maker had better restrict himself to the plainest of furniture, relying for the embellishment of his room upon good bookbindings and one or two old porcelain vases for his lamps. Concerning the difficult question of color, it is safe to say that the fewer the colors used in a room, the more pleasing and restful the room will be. A multiplicity of colors produces the same effect as a number of voices talking at the same time. The voices may not be discordant, but the continuous chatter is fatiguing in the long run. Each room should speak with but one voice. It should contain one color, which at once and unmistakably asserts its predominance, in obedience to the rule that where there is a division of parts, one part shall visibly prevail over all the others. To attain this result, it is best to use the same color and, if possible, the same material for curtains and chair coverings. This produces an impression of unity and gives an air of spaciousness to the room. When the walls are simply paneled in oak or walnut or are painted in some neutral tones, such as gray and white, the carpet may contrast in color with the curtains and chair coverings. For instance, in an oak-paneled room, crimson curtains and chair coverings may be used with a dull green carpet or with one of dark blue patterned in subdued tints. Or the color scheme may be reversed, and green hangings and chair coverings combined with a plain crimson carpet. Where the walls are covered with tapestry, or hung with a large number of pictures, or in short are so treated that they present a variety of colors, it is best that curtains, chair coverings, and carpet should all be of one color and without pattern. Graduated shades of the same color should almost always be avoided. Theoretically they seem harmonious, but in reality the light shades look faded in proximity with the darker ones. Though it is well as a rule that carpet and hangings should match, exception must always be made in favor of a really fine old eastern rug. The tints of such rugs are too subdued, too subtly harmonized by time, to clash with any colors the room may contain. But those who cannot cover their floors in this way will do well to use carpets of uniform tint rather than the gaudy rugs now made in the east. The modern red and green Smyrna or Turkey carpet is an exception. Where the furniture is dark and substantial and the predominating color is a strong green or crimson, such a carpet is always suitable. These Smyrna carpets are usually well designed, and if the colors are restricted to red and green with a small admixture of dark blue, they harmonize with almost any style of decoration. It is well, as a rule, to shun the decorative schemes concocted by the writers who supply our newspapers with hints for artistic interiors. The use of such poetic adjectives as jonquil yellow, willow green, shell pink, or ashes of roses gives to these descriptions of the unique boudoir or ideal summer room a charm which the reality would probably not possess. The arrangements suggested are usually cheap devices based upon the mistaken idea that defects in structure or design may be remedied by an overlaying of color or ornament. This theory often leads to the spending of much more money than would have been required to make one or two changes in the plan of the room, 
and the result is never satisfactory to the fastidious. There are but two ways of dealing with a room which is fundamentally ugly. One is to accept it, the other is courageously to correct its ugliness. Halfway remedies are a waste of money and serve rather to call attention to the defects of the room than to conceal them. End of chapter 2